What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, Hardwood Knox listeners. I am Dan Favalli coming at you without my co-host, Andrew D. Bailey, this time. Have a, a mailbag for you guys as we lean into our coronavirus content during this NBA work stoppage. We are going to try and cover this league as per usual, look at some long-term stuff. There's going to be more on that in a minute. Um, we'll give you some updates when, whenever it's necessary, but we don't want this to just become a constant reflection of what's happening in the league right now. If there's anything new that we hear in the news, we'll of co- co- course, excuse me, using my half Boston accent there for some reason, and no, I'm not from Boston. We will, of course, talk about it, though. And to that point, uh, seven NBA players have tested positive for COVID-19. We know of four of them because there were just four Nets that reportedly tested positive. Kevin Durant told Sham Sharania that he was one of them. Respect to him for coming out and saying that. I know there's a bunch of weird things going around with the HIPAA laws. Should NBA players have those test results be made public? Should they not? I don't really know how I feel about that, but they come into contact with so many people that I do think it's important for uh, the public to know. But you could also say that about any average Joe if they are just going about their daily lives for a week before they were in self-quarantine or anything like that. They can come into contact with hundreds of people, if not more, whereas with NBA players, of course, or professional athletes and celebrities, perhaps it's in the thousand. Kevin Durant joins, of course, Christian Wood, Donovan Mitchell, and Rudy Gobert, who was the first player to test positive. Again, that brings the total to seven NBA players from three different teams, the Jazz, Pistons, and Nets as of right now. I'm sure there will be more cases that prop up from from now. Before we get started, just the usual housekeeping notes. We'll try and make them quicker. Uh, just want to continue reminding, imploring, begging, pleading with everyone. Rate, review, subscribe to us on iTunes. The numbers have been a little bit stagnant during this work stoppage. We are here. We are going to be pumping out content for you. It would mean a lot if you can take the time to throw us that five-star rating. Write a review if you have any constructive criticism, maybe some ideas for the pods or just want to get your comments thrown out. Subscribing is the single best way to help us. doesn't matter whether you're using iTunes Stitcher, Spotify, any place like that. iTunes, though, it it at least helps us the most. And so make sure you're subscribing, downloading all all of our episodes. If you've done all that, make sure you're giving us shout-outs on Twitter, retweeting the promos that Andy and I will will throw out there, telling your friends, family members, enemies, frenemies, coworkers, random people who you should not be meeting on the street because hopefully you're all in self-isolation and taking this whole coronavirus thing seriously. We, of course, hope you're safe. That is our everyday wish here at the Hardwood Knox podcast. Follow our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube.com, search Hardwood Knox, and you will find most of our episodes on there. Our mailbags we tend not to put on YouTube, but our full-length podcast where we have guests and ourselves going back and forth, they will be up there. Follow Hardwood Knox on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. I am at Dan Favalli, F-A-V-A-L-E. Andy is at Andrew D. Bailey. And last but certainly not least, please follow the Blue Wire Podcast Network. A ton of great content being put out there daily. I do run the Twitter account, so if you follow at Blue Wire Pods, you're you're doing me a solid 
as well. We finish always in the intro with a shout out to our sponsor this week, betonline.ag. They are awesome. Promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, will get you a 50% deposit bonus there. Deposit bonus there, excuse me, so be sure to use that. That helps out the podcast as well. All those different things that you can do to help out the podcast, please do as many as you possibly can. With that, we'll get into this mailbag, uh, the first question of which sort of touches on our future plans. It comes from Twitter user, What's Next? Uh, they ask, what have you guys been spending time working on during the season layoff? This was tweeted to the at NBA math account as well, at NBA underscore math, follow them too. Adam Frommel, the founder and editor-in-chief at NBA Math. I know he's working on some stuff where there'll be a lot of historical comparisons, maybe a rolling rating MVP throughout history. He's just working on a bunch of different things, so be on the lookout there on the Twitter account. As for Hardwood Knox, our plan is still to deliver at least two to three episodes per week. We'll probably be heavier on guests. I already have some lined up. Those episodes are probably going to start rolling out next week, though, we don't know what we're necessarily going to do. We might target more national people to come on. I'm intrigued by the idea of going into singular team deep dives, but we're trying to weigh the trade-off where we do give up a lot of listens when we do those pods, but it's fun to do deep dives into every team. Also, though, it, it, you run into the problem, do you treat it as if this season's happening or not? We'll figure that out as we go along, but we will be here. We will be producing content, some big picture stuff. And again, bringing on guests as, as we see fit. So be on the lookout for that. Thank you for that question. Hopefully everyone appreciates that little update from here. Peter Nielsen asks, you lead by four with one minute remaining. What's the best estimated value game-wise? A 50% two-pointer or a 40% three-pointer? There are so many factors that are going to come into play here aside from the math. You have to worry about how many timeouts your team has remaining. If you're the squad that's trailing, uh, what personnel is on the court around this person? Are you more likely to grab that rebound if, if there's a long miss? Or can you trust that maybe you can get a second chance opportunity should that three-pointer miss? All that said, I go with the three-pointer. If you're dealing with a 40% shooter, he's going to return you 1.2 points per shot, whereas a 50% two-point shooter is going to give you one one point. Per look and just the math tends to work out there also if you hit that three it puts a little bit less pressure on the defense because you can still give up a score at the other end as long as it's not a three-pointer of course and it will end up being a one possession game still however with so much time left on the shot clock the context of what the two-pointer is matters because if we're talking about a dunk or a layup those are still going to be the most efficient shots in basketball and so if that's if that's available to you then you have course go with it but if we're talking about a two-point jump shot versus a, a three-point shooter who's hit 40 percent of his trades on the year i'm gonna go with the three-pointer in that scenario it, it's really a circumstantial question just as much as a math math question i think it just uh, unless the context really skews towards you're getting a gimme at the rim uh, in that situation as opposed to a post-up mid-range jumper I, I really think that the three-pointer is probably the best move there interesting question though this question comes from Twitter user NBA Discussion. They ask, what do you think of Julius Randle? I don't think he should be in the NBA. Holy hell, I am pretty low on Julius Randle. Wasn't a big fan of that signing for the Knicks last summer, but I don't know that we could say he doesn't belong in the NBA. Where you run into severe problems with him is he's not a good enough shooter these days to play the four, 29% this season. Last year, that was closer to being to the league average around 34%. And so if he was even there, you can get away with a lot more when he's on the court. 
but he still can be a mismatch with the ball in his hands, regardless of what front court spot he's playing. He's like this barreling bowling ball when he's getting up the floor and he can even beat some guys off the dribble in one-on-one situations. In the half court, he's a pretty good facilitator, 6.8 potential assists per game. That's right around a Paul George or a Shea Gilgis Alexander. If you're getting that out of your, your four man, that's, that's a pretty good harbinger. All of that being said, though, he's so bad defensively, just so bad in basically any situation. He can hold his own in some just straight one-on-ones, and maybe if he's going against a low percentage post player who's not going to have a, a ton of counters, he might be fine. And he, he does really have that that size to him, that, that girth where he shouldn't be overpowered too much, but he's just not going to be able to stick with guys off the dribble, not the most aware guy off the ball. And where he's really going to start to hurt you is if you put him at center. The solution here is really surround him with shooters, four shooters, and let him handle the ball, get up and down the court. That's a perfect situation for him. That being said, you're going to give up a ton of looks at the rim when, when he is your five man. Uh, this season, 37% of opponent shots are coming at the rim when he's uh, on the court in general for the Knicks. That's in the 31st percentile. And opponents are shooting 67.3% at the rim when he's on the floor. That's in the, the 12th percentile. That's not great. The numbers don't improve much, if at all, when you're looking at him at the five this year. How The thing there, though, is the Knicks really haven't played him at the five. 212 possessions this year, and they've had a, a 112.6 defensive rating with him at center. That could most certainly be worse, but it seems like more small small sample shenanigans there. The Pelicans could not survive defensively when he was at the five last year, and it really showed. They allowed parades to the rim. It didn't matter how, how good they were offensively. If he's at the five, you're going to give back almost as much, if not more, defensively. In a different situation, though, I, I do think that he can work. It's just a matter of what team is that right now. If you put him on the Boston Celtics and you made him a center, I think that he'd be just fine because they have so many good defenders when you look at Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, uh, even Gordon Hayward, that they can throw on the wings and and really help him out. And you also have a Brown and Smart and sometimes Tatum who can handle some of the the bigger assignments. So that might make his job easier. He's not the type of player, though, that you go to such an extent to build around. If he can just fit in seamlessly into that, if he was a free agent and he was looking at taxpayer mid-level money or maybe even non-taxpayer mid-level money, that's something you roll the dice on, but when you're dealing with him in that sixteen to twenty million dollar price range, you, you you can't view him as a as a building block. I think that ship has definitively sailed for him. Next question comes from Twitter user Jonathan Kelly. Would Draymond Green be good on any other team? <laughs> kind of another loaded question there. Draymond Green has not been good this season. And his effort has waxed and waned, mostly waned, I think because he understands there's really nothing to play for in Golden State this year. And you've really seen him, not just on offense, not really look for his shot, but just not be the same type of defensive anchor. He's still one of the best defensive players of this era, though, and maybe one of the best defensive players ever. If you watch him in the previous seasons, just all the talking he does on defense, the way that he can defend multiple players in a single half-court possession, it's really just absurd. And to have his IQ on the defensive end where he can just kill you from anywhere, whether it's as this help defender, whether it's as a a secondary helper around the rim, whether it's as the five-man uh, whether it's just switching on- onto ball handlers who should, in theory, be quicker than him because they're smaller and maybe more explosive, he can hold his own in basically any situation. We've seen that a little bit this year, too, when he's on. The Warriors have a 111.1 
defensive rating with him on the court. That's in the 49th percentile, which when you look at their defensive personnel, it's not that bad. They're still giving up a really bad effective field goal percentage to opponents. It would be in the 30th percentile, but they do a good job limiting opportunities when he's around the rim, especially when he's not the the lone quote unquote big there because he can, if you're going to have a, you know, when they had Willie Cauley Stein there, uh, if you had him floating around the rim and you knew you also had Draymond on the court, it makes it much harder to score there, but he's also a great uh, five man on his own. And to help to be that deterrent, that's going to be a huge value to your defense by default. Uh, what really kills them when he's on the court though, and this might be more personnel this season is that opponents are shooting a ridiculous clip from mid range there. There's definitely got to be a little bit of, of luck there. And, you know, they're going to get a ton of three point shots up when you look at the Warriors perimeter personnel, they're not shooting, um, especially high percentages against the Warriors from three when he's on the court. But when you add the volume in, uh, they can hurt you there. And then also once green is really at the rim, if he's your primary line of defense there, he's not going to be great just because he's six, six maybe with, with shoes on. And so the Warriors are giving up a, a pretty high percentage at the rim when opponents actually get there and are and are shooting. That's problematic. That being said, while they really haven't gone to this during the season this year, probably because they want to conserve him for next season when they have Klay Thompson healthy, Stephen Curry will be more available. Still, they've allowed uh, a really absurdly low defensive rating when he's at the five this season. It's only been 109 uh, possessions, but that that's really a, a big deal. Where I think his value becomes more complicated is on the offensive end. He uh, He's shooting, the, I think, close to a career worst from three this year, if not a career worst. He's under 30% from deep since that 2015-2016 season where he was at 38.8%. That was clearly an outlier. But if you surround him with shooting, he can still be a great passer. And he's maybe more someone that you'd be willing to cater to when you look at the type of passing uh, he can get you. He's averaging over six assists for the Warriors as it is, and a lot of that has to do with usage, and he's not someone who's going to look for his own shot too often. But if you just put him in a a more reliable situation, and the Warriors have not been a great three-point shooting team this year, I I think that he, he does then have supreme offensive value. Let's swap him out in Houston for Russell Westbrook, and what do you think happens? I think a lot of the same results. Maybe you feel more comfortable putting your center on Draymond Green because he's not going to assault you at the rim the way Russell Westbrook does, but the way that he can pass the ball coming off screens, maybe that incentivizes the Rockets to to use more pick and roll and just high ball screens in, in general. That's probably the model, though, that you need to have around Draymond Green, is that your center needs to be able to shoot or he needs to be the center surrounded by by four shooters. And that might be something that Golden State struggles to do next year. A lot of it will be predicated on not just having Clay Thompson and Stephen Curry healthy, but how well is Andrew Wiggins shooting from the floor? How many of their players this season proved to be mainstays? Can you get away with a front court of Eric Pascal and, and Draymond Green and then Andrew Wiggins? What does that look like offensively for you? Still, I think you can put him in different situations. And as long as you give him, let's say, three shooters, three above average shooters on the court, I think he can still have some some pretty high offensive value. March sadness is rolling on and on and on. Our Winox listeners, we know. This has been the longest decade of our lives, and it's it's somehow only March. Bizarre, right? But you don't have to indulge in March sadness all the time, thanks to betonline.ag. With currently no NBA, NHL, or college basketball, or really anything else for that matter, including Formula One, golf, all, that, all those good sports, you might think there's nothing to bet on. You'd be wrong, though. BetOnline still has hundreds of places to wager, from their online casino to poker and blackjack. 
all of which are open 24 hours a day and all online. Sports aren't totally done. There's still mixed martial arts and esports. It continues to be on the rise. If you're into entertainment, you can still bet on American Idol, the elections, the spelling bee, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. Be sure to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, that's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. You will receive a 50% welcome bonus by using it. Bet online, your new ticket to online action. Next question comes from good friend of the pod, Adam Spinella. He asks, would you rather have prime healthy Grant Hill or Clay Thompson? Holy shit, this was a really tough question for me. I am in the camp of Clay Thompson being supremely underrated and the sacrifices he's made on both offense and defense when you look at the assignments that he has to cover. They're astronomical, and I, I think they've not only dragged his numbers down when you're looking at the offensive end, but what they ask him to do on defense, you're never really going to see the, the impact that he really has. He's not going to get a ton of the, the defensive counting stats, and sometimes the defensive splits aren't going to reflect as soundly on him, but when you look at what he's going up against so many number one options, that threat is going to be there when you are effectively the anchor of an entire perimeter defense. And just having him on the court by extension makes Stephen Curry's job easier. The the extent to which you need to go to hide Stephen Curry, put that in air quotes as well, that's always been a little bit overblown. He has pretty good size for a point guard, and, and he's fought over screens during, during his prime. But to not have to put him on point guards uh, primary ball handlers as often as you would usually need to without a Clay Thompson there, that's a huge deal. Now, I would still go with peak Grant Hill. I don't know if a ton of people remember how good he was, and uh, I didn't really get to see peak Grant Hill. I was still so young. You know, when you're looking at the 95-96 season, I think that was his second year in the league. Uh, I was, I think, six years old then, six, six, maybe, maybe seven. I was born in 89. Anyway, so... His five-year peak, his age 23 to 27 seasons, he averaged 29, 21.9 points, 6.5 assists, and 1.6 steals per game. No one who appeared in at least 300 games during that span matched his steal percentage, block percentage, and defensive rebounding percentage. He could really be this understated weapon on the defensive end. And even as he got older, I'll never forget when I... I don't want to say when I first started paying attention to the NBA, but when I really started to take things in and uh, just dive deeper into it, it was around, you know, 2009, like LeBron's last year in Cleveland, LeBron's last years in Cleveland. But I do remember the 2010 uh, Suns Blazers series in the playoffs where Grant Hill, age 37, was just an absolute defensive monster. That doesn't factor in to this discussion because we're looking at prime Grant Hill versus prime Clay Thompson. But when you add his shot creation into the fold with just the help defense that he really showed, and he could be this understated rim protector too, really go up against guys at the rim, he might be. I, I would have to watch more of his prime games, but seeing what I did see from him later in his career, there's a chance that he might just be one of the smartest help defenders in NBA history. And Adam Spinella, who coaches a college basketball team in addition to writing for the basketball writers, might be able to speak to that or definitely could be able to speak to that better than I could. But he was really good. And so give me the prime, healthy Grant Hill. Even, you know, and again, I, I'm not even sure that we understand when he was available how well he really aged uh, gracefully. And it, it really bums me out that we look back on how much prime basketball was, was lost due to his battles with injuries in, in the middle of his career. Next question comes from Twitter user Carapillar. 
they ask, what's going on between Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell? This is actually a question that I wanted to tackle in the wake of the COVID-19 stuff. I and Adam Frommel talked about how the criticism of Rudy Gobert reached probably the point where it was too much. You absolutely need to drag, drag him for touching all those microphones, uh, just to reiterate what we said. But there's no way of knowing who he passed it on to. And he had to catch it from someone. And it could have been Donovan Mitchell himself. We can't detect the point of origin, at least as far as I know, on this coronavirus. So to say that he is the one that blew up the NBA, it's just patently false. That said, and apparently I'm going to say that said a ton this podcast. There's always a podcast where I, I, I overuse one phrase. That's going to be it today. Donovan Mitchell's clearly pissed. Uh, Tony Jones of The Athletic wrote a fantastic piece. I'm recording this on a Tuesday night, and I believe it came out this morning, about Mitchell's feelings. Uh, he did an interview on Good Morning America, I believe, where it's clear that he's still a little heated with Gobert and, and hasn't talked with him. This is something the Jazz are just going to have to address, and I understand Donovan Mitchell's frustrations because at least the optics now are that Rudy Gobert didn't take it seriously, and if for some reason he did pass it on to Donovan Mitchell, he's of course going to be angry. It's something that he has to get over to as well, though, because Gobert didn't give him the coronavirus intentionally, and to that point, we don't even know if Gobert had it first. It could have been Donovan Mitchell. We really just don't know. What I will say is a little bit ridiculous is the Jazz fans who are really killing Woj for the way he phrased his tweet about how players in the Jazz locker room were frustrated with the way that Rudy Gobert was acting before he was diagnosed with COVID-19. He heard that from players on the team. I don't understand why that's on Woj if that was offered up to him. And maybe it's not something that you want passed along, but that's on Rudy Gobert's teammates just as much as it is on Woj. And so we don't need to look at this as some bias against bias reporting against Rudy Gobert in my opinion. Perhaps that's not the way that he should have gone about reporting the news, but if he's hearing it from players on the Jazz, you should be more mad at them if you want them to protect their own, if you're going to be that upset with Wojnarowski, and that's that's where I land on that. I do ultimately think that Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell will be fine. I, I can't imagine this gets to an either-or scenario where they have to have to choose one, but it is going to be critical that you address this whenever the NBA resumes business, if not before then. You have to try and get them to talk to each other via Skype or text message or, or something. This is all going to last a while longer, and it's going to be all we think about, but you can't blame Rudy Gobert for giving Donovan Mitchell uh, COVID-19. And he didn't. it doesn't seem like Rudy Gobert or that any of the reporters around the Jazz were infected by COVID-19 either. And so him touching the microphones in that sense didn't really do anything. And if he was touching things excessively in the locker room more than he does, that's only one player. Donovan Mitchell was infected in his lockers next to Gobert. It would be more of a happenstance thing than a, a deliberate Rudy Gobert really fucked up there. And just to reiterate, we don't know that Rudy Gobert gave it to Donovan Mitchell. So I've, I've played both sides of the fence here, and I think that's really the only way to do this. In my mind, though, Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, that, that probably won't be a long-term issue with the Jazz. I think time will heal everything in this sense, particularly as we see and Donovan Mitchell sees and everyone else around the league sees that this was just an inevitable stoppage for the NBA, regardless of, of what happens. You have more players who have been uh, tested positive for COVID-19 already, and so this isn't something that Rudy Gobert or anybody on the Jazz started. They're just that that first case that that triggered the the, the effects of of COVID-19 in general. The NBA was just always speeding towards this sabbatical. Next question comes from Steve Ahern. 
his his question is: Can you visualize or compare Jason Tatum's rise in the NBA to other historic comps? Thanks. I'm not going to visualize it because it's a podcast and. I don't really know how to compare the rise itself when you look at his uptick in production a- across history. Uh, you could certainly look at his usage jump if you have a little bit more time, but that's not something that uh, I, I allocated time for before this podcast. Uh, however, when you really look at the workload he's shouldering this year, the number of off-the-dribble threes that he's taken, his usage rate has spiked by 65 percentage points compared to last season. His true shooting percentage is up from last year, despite that uptick in volume, getting to the free throw line a little bit more often. Uh, more of his shots, particularly since the middle of December, are coming in the restricted area. He's just improved basically every facet of the game. His, his pick and roll volume as as uh, the initiator has nearly doubled when looking at the possessions that he's finished. Still needs to improve as a facilitator, get to the line more consistently. There are games where it feels like he can get there 10 to 14 times, but then there are other nights where he still bails out too early on his drives. Probably needs to give the ball up on those plays more often anyway. But this is someone who is in all-NBA territory, not just overall, but on defense too. I haven't done my all-defense teams or all-NBA teams, but there's a really good chance that Tatum ends up on my second team all defense. I'm not. I don't think he'll make first. Just doing this in my mind at the at the moment. But to make an All NBA and All Defensive team the same season, your age 21 season, no less. That's a huge deal. And what I did look at though is for this season specifically, just looking at a shot difficulty. 25 players are attempting at least three pull up triples per game. Tatum's 39.9 percent clip on those looks is third behind only. Karis Levert and Damian Lillard. That's just, that's really just a wild number to me. And then when you look through throughout history of players who by their third season or earlier are matching Tatum's current usage rate, 28.6, true shooting percentage, uh, 56.2, and scoring at least 24.5 points per 75 possessions, which is basically what he's averaging. There are only 14 other players throughout NBA history who have done that in their third season or earlier. Two of them are happening this year. Luka Doncic, uh, a sophomore, and Trey Young, also a sophomore. Those guys are incredible, too. Looking at the past players who have done it, we'll, we'll go in order. Walter Davis, Mark Aguirre, Michael Jordan, Karl Malone, Shaquille O'Neal, Paul Pierce, Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Ben Gordon. Nice little reminder of how how good Ben Gordon was once upon a time. He did it in 2007, FYI. Kevin Durant, Joel Embiid, and then as I already mentioned, Trey Young and Luka Doncic. That's spectacular company. The only red flag here would be Ben Gordon, where his career arc just sort of fell off a cliff. But for Tatum to be at this point, where I think you look at him and say he can be one of the 10 best players in the league, that's the most important thing, because that puts the Celtics back in the open-ended title window we thought that they had initially established, and they they really sort of of didn't. They look good in the future because he's so young. Jalen Brown's still pretty young, but they can compete now because he's already All-NBA good. Have another Celtics question here. It's also semi-Nets related because it involves Kyrie. This comes from a Twitter user, Seth. What is Kemba's plus-minus versus what Kyrie's was in Boston? I'm not a big fan of raw plus-minus when looking at entire seasons, so I'm going to use net rating. I'm also not a big fan of just cross comparing years the teams are different their roles are different but let's just look at these numbers the celtics were outscoring opponents by plus 0.4 points per 100 possessions with Kyrie on the floor last year kemba walker this season they're outscoring opponents by 1.5 points per 100 possessions more than when he's off the court excuse me these these are the swings uh the celtics were 0.4 possession 
0.4 points per 100 possessions better with Kyrie last year. They're 1.5 points per 100 possessions better this year. Uh, that's that's in that's in some. It includes offense and defense. Kemba Walker, of course, has this huge offensive net rating swing. The Celtics are 7.6 points per 100 possessions better with him on the court there. What I ultimately do think, though, if you throw these out the window, is that Kemba Walker is just by far and away the better fit because of what he allows other players on the team to do. And so Kyrie's offensive rating swings were similar, plus 6.4 last year with the Celtics, uh, plus 7.1 with the Celtics last year, excuse me, and plus 8.5 in 2017-2018. That was a year where he was really an MVP candidate and an outside MVP candidate. You looked at him as one of the 10 best players in the game. So that's not to understate what he could do with the Celtics when he was healthy and engaged. But when you when you look at what Kemba Walker is able to do, he's just someone who doesn't need the ball in his hands as much. He can take the same type of shots as Kyrie Irving, but he maybe doesn't have such an inclination to and probably doesn't want to after all those years in Charlotte going it alone. He's just what I would call a comfier fit because Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and even Gordon Hayward are going to have more opportunities to work on the ball. Um, Kemba Walker's the number of baskets that are coming off assists this season are a career high for him. Um, and that's a measurable increase from where Irving was at last year. 37.3% of his baskets came off assists. Their average touch time is actually the same. And Walker controls the ball for longer when he has it and uses more dribbles per possession than Kyrie Irving last season. But he's also, Kemba's also burning through fewer front court touches overall. So that displaces him from the ball more. And he's also finishing off screens more frequently than Kyrie Irving did and operating in isolation less. And so all of that is going to have this waterfall effect where it makes it easier on the rest of the team. I also don't think that we can overstate the fact that it wasn't just Kyrie that the Celtics lost. Al Horford, I don't think is as big of a deal because he was someone who could play off the ball and did elevate the players around him with his passing. But you look at a Marcus Morris and a, and a Terry Rozier, it's just you, you smashed so many guys who preferred to operate on the ball together that it made this just awkward chemical mix, and we, we saw it. And to now lose a few of those guys and replace them with, with Kemba Walker, who's going to do more stuff off the ball, at the very least more than just Irving, um, and maybe even a little bit more than a Terry Rozier than he did in Boston. He's doing a lot of it in Charlotte now, though, and perhaps Marcus Morris in, in certain instances. I think that's huge and what's ultimately the, the biggest difference for, for Boston by swapping out Kyrie for Kemba Walker. Next question comes from Oscar Mar- Martel Pontigo. He asks, what is the Blazers plus minus with Nurkic and Zach Collins sharing the floor? So again, not a fan of year long plus minus. I'm going to use net rating. Also, they haven't shared the floor this season. Nurkic has been out all year. Collins has only appeared in three games because of a, a shoulder injury. What's also interesting is that Collins is in his third season and these two have now only played sub 240 possessions together. Uh, that speaks to the amount of time that the Blazers used them together last year. It was only for 131 possessions, according to Cleaning the Glass. Uh, During that time, the Blazers had a net rating of 6.1. Their offensive rating, though, was in the 18th percentile. It was really the defense that carried them. They allowed just 99.2 points per 100 possessions in that sample size. That's insanely good. Um, They held opponents to a ridiculously low effective a field goal percentage, 46.6, and they were just monsters on the glass. That's what you're going to get if you have Collins and Nurkic at the four and the five. 
you have questions about their future fit together, but I think you look at the progression from uh, 2017 to 2018 uh, into last year as a positive sign because the Blazers, again, only used Nurkic and Collins for 101 possessions together in 2017, 2018. Their offensive rating was in the first percentile, 94.1, and they gave up a 126 uh, defensive rating. What really improved for them defensively is Collins wasn't a rookie and he seemed more apt to defend both the four and five positions as a sophomore. And that's something they're still going to get from him when he's fully healthy. What it, this really comes down to is what can you do with these two offensively? McCollum and Lillard can get you buckets even in the tightest of spaces. And Nurkic does have a little bit of pick and pop to his game. He was a fantastic passer in 2018, 2019, but you need more space if you're going to run with those dual big combinations. And that's going to really come down to can Zach Collins hit his threes. He has not been a league average shooter from beyond the arc to this point. And so if you can run him beyond the three point line and defenses actually have to go out and defend him, it makes everyone's jobs more easier. You have Nurkic with more room to operate, not just in the post, but on his short rolls to the basket, more room for CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard. It does seem like maybe Collins was tracking in that direction this season, uh, 42.9% from three. Of course, that's only over three games. What's probably uh, not as encouraging is his three-point attempt rate, uh, excuse me, is encouraging, more encouraging, is his three-point attempt rate. It was around 37 compared to, to 30, 30 last year. He probably needs to get to the 40%, 50% three-point attempt rate, if not more, because you're not asking him to do a ton of stuff in the post or really on the ball. And so maybe you're going to want that to be even higher. And that's going to be key for this pairing if the, if the Blazers do end up keeping it moving forward. Interesting offseason for them if we don't have a regular season, of course, because they won't have seen Nurkic. Collins will have missed the entire year. Their sample size, as I said, is about 231 possessions over the past three seasons because of all this. Are you going to look at moving Collins in a bigger package to bring in just a more defined high-impact player, I would say? You're not going to get a star with him as the the main attraction, maybe if you're also training Anthony Simons, but we also know that the Blazers like to get high on their own supply of young players and tend to value them more than others ac- across the league. I do, there are a ton of reasons I want the regular season to come back, but seeing Nurkic healthy um, and then what the Blazers could potentially look like when you have him, McCollum, Lillard, and Collins together, maybe a little bit of Mello, you have Ariza there too, things to monitor. I just want to see what this team looks like closer to, to full strength because they've had a, a hard year after not having the most impressive Impressive offseason. Going to get to a couple more questions right here. Robbie Palinks asks, other than the Nets, which sneaky NBA team might super benefit from this extended spring break due to players coming back from injury? Let's assume the season comes back for the playoffs in mid-June. Mid-June might be a little bit ambitious at this point. I believe it's probably going to be more likely July if the season comes back at all, but things can change. It's a very fluid situation. I looking at just injuries. So we know the Nets with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. I don't think they would come back anyway, just because Brooklyn has to play the longer game there, particularly with Kevin Durant, because he's coming back from an Achilles injury and wasn't prepared to play this season at all. I don't believe just based out of all the reporting we've seen there. The Sixers are, of course, on this list. You you had Ben Simmons, who's been banged up dealing with a lower back injury. And so if you can get him healthy and then play a couple regular season games before the playoffs, that ends up being huge for you. There are a lot of questions about the Sixers. They're still defensive monsters with their five best players on the floor, and they've all been collectively banged up. Joel Embiid just came back from his injury. Al Horford's been dealing with knee problems and apparently playing through Achilles issues. Maybe giving him this rest really helps him clean up. 
if you're looking at, let's move the scope beyond injuries, though, and just seeing what breaks could benefit a team, and throw the Blazers on there, too, because if you just give Nurkic more time off, and it just makes him healthier for when he does come back, and perhaps he doesn't need as long to find his game legs, that's probably not necessarily the case, but it could be. Throw the Hawks in there as well. Does this increase the likelihood that they get a look at Clint Capella, who is still yet to make his debut for them? We we really don't know. But again, let's let's branch out aside from the injuries and what teams could technically benefit from this. I think a squad like the Lakers, just to give Anthony Davis a breather, he's been relatively healthy compared to his other seasons. And just LeBron, we've seen how dangerous he can be on rest. And so you give LeBron rest, you know he's going to take care of his body, ends up being a couple months off. It's like an it's like just as long as his off seasons in the past have essentially been when he was making the finals every single year. That could end up being mega scary for the rest of the league if you're looking at a fresh LeBron. And of course, there are other players who can say the same. You know, Giannis Antetokounmpo hasn't even averaged 31 minutes per game this season, and now you're just going to give him more rest. What is he going to look like? There might have been some concern. Could you really up his minutes in the playoffs when he's not used to playing them? Now that he's going to have all this time off, does that make it easier, harder? I don't know. With LeBron, you just know we've seen it before that rest really helps him. I, of course, think the Clippers, who have just been perpetually banged up this season, Kawhi Leonard's been one of their healthier players. Uh, Paul George is back in the lineup, and so maybe this just makes it easier to, to keep him there if the regular season returns. The the Pacers are dealing with, a, I don't want to say a smorgasbord of injuries, but you have Malcolm Brogdon and Jeremy Lamb on the shelf. We know Lamb is going to be out for this year and, and probably miss parts of of next year, but does this help Malcolm Brogdon come back at all, or is he just going to be out for the year now? So so those are all some things to monitor. I'm trying to think of some, some other teams that might benefit from this. Uh, the Grizzlies, I think, again, we're not looking at injuries, though. Justice Winslow, perhaps this makes it easier for him to come back from his, his back issues, and, and Dylan Brooks was banged up at the time. You also had Brandon Clark and Jaron Jackson Jr. missing games. This absolutely helps the Grizzlies. Also, if you shorten the regular season, it makes it more likely that they're just going to make the playoffs by default. And if they just go right into the playoffs and there's no play-in tournament or anything, and they just end up with the eighth seed, that ends up benefiting them in a big way. For the Timberwolves down the, the stretch, you're not going to to make the playoffs, but maybe you can get more of an extensive look at D'Angelo Russell and Carl Anthony Towns because you don't have a sample size with them to work with right now. Towns has been missing games Uh dealing he's dealing with a, a wrist injury and he was at the time when the nba uh, it was march 6th i think it was announced that he was going to be out at least two more weeks and so that takes us to you know the end of march and now he's going to get who knows if he would have been ready to come back from there but he's going to get even extra time off that's a team that just trying to look at and figure out the big picture that really helps them them there we'll move on to this last question uh, this comes from jared levitt will the knicks ever not suck again I don't know. That's the that's the short answer. Uh, what could really do them a favor is if they start acting like a rebuilding team, where they're going to just not have young players on the roster, but prioritize their development. Let's get past those games where Taj Gibson, Alfred Payton, Bobby Portis are aver- logging more minutes than even Dennis Smith Jr. at this point. Uh, Kevin Knox, RJ Barrett's been a pretty steady staple in the lineup, but why don't you have Mitchell Robinson starting in the front court right now? Will Leon Rose change the culture, or is he going to look for those slapdash solutions where the Knicks really chase those one-season overnight free agency coups and, and look to become this insta-playoff contender? That's probably the most toxic thing about New York, aside from James Dolan existing in general. And so if you can get to a point where you're prioritizing 
youth, their development, while not really trying to fuck with the roster and add a ton of veterans who are going to need touches and, and really overlap or just be counterintuitive relative to the skill sets of the youngsters, that ends up being a huge deal. And I'll point to RJ Barrett this year. Imagine him on a team where they just surrounded him with at least three shooters. The Knicks struggled to surround him with one. But just imagine if he didn't have, you know, a Julius Randle and Mitchell Robinson in the front court at the same time. If you had, if one of those guys was an actual shooter and you had another two shooters on the wings. It's just, that's the point that they need to get to is, is smarter roster building. There was no problem with the lengths of the contracts they gave out last summer when they struck out on their star free agents. They did go too big man heavy. That's just the power forward joke has been out there. You can get away with some of those guys playing five, Gibson, Portis, even Randall, if you're looking to soup up the offense, but they, they haven't always indulged those scenarios. You have to be smarter about roster construction. And RJ Barrett, I think is good enough to really try to reformat the team around him at this point. He's the closest thing you have to a blue chip prospect. I don't think that you're, it, Mitchell Robinson is there too. Don't get me wrong, but RJ Barrett's going to have inherent more influence over the game because he's a primary ball handler and facilitator. Over the past like two weeks, a little bit more than that before the break, he looked a lot more decisive in the half court. He was more efficient. Over his past eight games, he's averaging 18.3 points, 3.5 assists, slashing 48.2, 37.5% from three on four attempts per game. That That's a big deal. And inching closer to 70% at the free throw line, 68.3, and was getting there uh, at a pretty good clip. He's done some things defensively too, where he makes me think that he might be able to hang on some two and threes, not the primary scorers, but not need someone, not be someone who's really just going to, to get beat. He can muck up and contest some, some shot attempts when he's on the ball. And so there, there might be a higher ceiling for him than people are crediting right now, because there have been so many rookers, rookies who have been better throughout the course of the year. I think he, at this point is at least worth building your team around in the interim, because we don't know what you're going to get in this year's draft. Everyone's very low on the level of talent within it. Uh, you also don't know where you're going to end up in the lottery at this point. So he's the guy that I think you need to look towards and just assume that he's going to play a ton of minutes with Mitchell Robinson. And yes, I want to see Frank Nielakina and Kevin Knox run with them too. But when you're looking at signing free agents, because they are one of the few teams, even with the projected salary cap dip, I think we can call it projected at this point, given how much revenue the NBA is going to lose, no matter what the scenario ends up being for this year. If they decline uh, Bobby Portis's team option, waive the non-guaranteed salaries of, of a lot of these guys, uh, specifically a Taj Gibson, there they're, they're going to open up a, a ton of money. And so, you know, Reggie Bullock is a guy maybe you keep for that. I would probably still waive Wayne Ellington and pay his one million partial guarantee. He hasn't been shooting too well in New York, but those are the types of players you should probably be giving more run next to Robinson and Barrett, uh, just so that you that you give them both space to operate. And can you? throw out lineups that are four out and maybe five out if you want to include RJ Barrett. Teams are going to leave him open. And if he can shoot around league average from three, that ends up being a huge deal. That's the direction to me that I think they need to go uh, immediately. Not, I'm not saying this will work four or five years down the line, but right now as you're still trying to figure out what you have in Kevin Knox, even Frank Nielakina, future Hall of Famer, Frank Nielakina, excuse me. Uh, that's the that's the direction that's the path that you should be traveling down and so if that's what we see from them this summer that is the most encouraging sign this new front office regime uh, under Leon Rose can can really do this year and that that's just going to be something to watch if it's the the same old Knicks or maybe they're giving out long-term contracts to players who don't necessarily fit the timeline or fit the roster that's when the red flags go up there really isn't a free agent outside of Anthony Davis that's worth overpaying this year i think you can be okay with going 
to throw money at a, at a Fred Van Fleet if it's three years and sixty million or, or around there, just because he's only twenty six. He's played alongside other ball dominant players before, and he's like a mini Kyle Lowry on defense. He could be so physical there. He's not going to take as as many charges or go to such great lengths to to flop and all that. But just looking at his shooting, secondary playmaking, he's led bench units on his own before. He's a starting level player in today's NBA, and so that's someone that you're at least comfortable with. You don't want to look at it as we're signing him, and so we're going to sign other players so that we can try and make the playoff push next year. That's not something that they should be going after. And so if they do whatever over the offseason to show that they're going to prioritize their youth and build the roster in that vein with talent that actually complements R.J. Barrett, Mitchell Robinson first and foremost, but also isn't going to overshadow the developments of a Kevin Knox, will they still have Dennis Smith Jr. or Frank Nielakina? At this point, I think you can justify moving any one of those three. I don't want to see the move Frank Nielakina, just a monster defensively. And when he's aggressive on offense, there's there's this smoothness to his game. Don't know if he'll ever be decisive enough to be that type of player, though. If you can sell high on a Knox or Frank Nielakina, I think Dennis Smith Jr. is probably not the best fit for this team in general. And if you can get anything for him, you might have to write him off as a sunk cost. If you're going to keep them, though, have them on the floor and sign guys that are going to complement them and who don't cannibalize their minutes because that's what the Knicks have done. And I know a lot of people say Alfred Payton has played well enough to come back next year. Looking at this roster and what it needs to do, I think you can be perfectly fine if they decide to let him hit free agency. It's fine to have that one veteran point guard there, but then don't go and pay Fred Van Fleet as well. Don't keep Dennis Smith Jr. You need to give RJ Barrett a lot of those on-ball reps. And so that's when you need to start looking at, at moving guys. I hope that answers your question, Jarrett, but honestly, we don't we don't know if the Knicks are going to be good again, so long as Dolan is in, in charge of that team. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. As we get more into this NBA hiatus, it, it's, going to, it's going to get dreary. Things are going to get worse before they get better. That's talking about life in general. We're hoping here at Hardwood Knox that everyone remains safe. We encourage you to ask us more questions throughout this time. Tag me on Twitter, at Dan Favalli. You can tag... Hardwood Knox at Hardwood Knox. We're not as great about checking those mentions. Hashtag Hardwood Knox. That's something I've been refreshing lately too. We'll always send out the solicitation thing, but ask us more questions. We'll answer them on the pod. There'll be plenty of time for these mailbag type episodes. We we hope you appreciate them. And on that final note, aside from hoping that you all remain safe still, just going to keep reiterating that over this time as the COVID-19 pandemic gets worse and worse. Keep... Uh, downloading all of our episodes. If you haven't subscribed to us, if this is your first episode, I hope you enjoyed it and consider giving us extra chances, even if you did like it. We put a lot of work into this here. We enjoy delivering you this content. Maybe help us get the word of mouth out if you have rated, reviewed, and subscribed to us. Anything you can do helps, and it contributes to building what is already a pretty sizable community, and and we appreciate every single one of you. Until next time, I leave you with a shout-out to... The one and only Kyle Anderson. And because I'm, I'm in a generous mood the past few weeks, I'm going to shout out Andy Bailey's guy, Ben Udry as well. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.